Du lytter nå til podcastversjonen av Forum for vitenskap og demokrati. Foredraget inngår i en serie møter av relevans for UBs engagemang med FNs bærekraftsmål og blir arrangert i samarbeid med Bergen Global og SDG Bergen. Tema for dagen var Media and Truth. Dagens innleder var William Merrin. Foredraget ble holdt i Kristi Café Naturhistorisk Museum 25. april 2019. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm utterly honoured and thank you for coming here as well so early. And <clears throat> most of what I'm saying today is a version of what I wrote in the introduction to the, um, the book on uh, Trump's media war. So if anyone wants a copy of most of what I've said, in English I'm afraid, I'm sorry, then let me know, email me and I'll pass it on or I'll give it to you to disseminate. Um, the title I was given was Media and Truth, so I'm kind of spinning that to look at the question of kind of what I call the weaponization of reality itself. Um, and the obvious kind of point here is to begin with is the fact that we are claimed to be currently experiencing a crisis of truth, which is blamed upon a range of things, including social media disinformation, conspiracy theories, the filter bubble, the idea we're all living in our own little kind of personalised kind of media experiences, the rise of extremism online, the internet becoming a toxic space of hate speech and abuse, and the rise of also, or the problem of mainstream media itself being exposed as fakery. And all of this is apparently creating a crisis of democracy. This is the kind of the theme that is repeatedly kind of told to us. And there's an interesting way in which we can track the concept of fake news, because there's really a kind of three-month period when it becomes significant. And it starts, of course, with the 9th of November 2016, when suddenly we get this electoral shock. And Donald Trump, um, the uh, most unqualified political candidate in, in American political history, with no political experience, simply a kind of businessman and kind of reality TV star, and member of the World uh, of Wrestling Hall of Fame as well, lest we forget, suddenly beat possibly the most qualified candidate in uh, American electoral history. And America essentially hired the um, star of a reality TV show who could do no wrong. Everything he did that should have torpedoed a normal campaign only seemed to add to its strength and appeal. And immediately afterwards, there was a kind of, there was a desire to find out why this had happened, a desire to explain it. And instead of actually looking at the world, which might have been a good way of starting, they immediately, as we do today, you blame social media. This has become the kind of the easy way out for everything. And already within a day or so, um, Facebook in particular was kind of getting the blame. And something called fake news on Facebook had apparently been so influential, this had led to Donald Trump being elected. By the next day... Zuckerberg actually had to respond to this publicly, and he said it was crazy to blame Facebook, because actually what he was saying, pointing out quite rightly, was people don't just vote because of Facebook, they vote because of real issues in their lives, the reality of the economy, the reality of how they feel about politics. And Zuckerberg quickly had to um, kind, of, kind of, in a sense, defend Facebook. Um, within about a week, um, President, ex-president as he was becoming, Obama, also gave a speech in which he said that Facebook and kind of social media today was a problem. And all of the pressure built up on Facebook so much that they made a significant climb down over the next couple of months. They began to say that um, they would deal with the problem. 
and they said that they'd introduce a raft of measures including flagging up fake news and kind of trying to kind of establish the authority of posts in order to deal with the problem but the biggest thing came in um, December where Facebook basically had to climb down Facebook had always been trying to claim they were a technology company, not a media company. Because if they're a media company, they have to take responsibility and they might be regulated in a way they didn't want to be. They relied upon um, part of the American legal code, which suggested they were simply carriers of information like a telephone system. They weren't responsible for what people did with it. And Facebook had to make a significant climb down to say, although we don't write the news stories you share, we recognise we're more than just a distributor of news. We're a new kind of platform for public discourse. So we have a new kind of responsibility to enable people to have the most meaningful conversations and build a space where people can be informed. So this was a significant admission by Facebook that they did play some kind of media-type role. And in fact, it's obvious that they did because they have a history of asserting editorial control and taking down images or taking down material that they didn't think should be on there. The immediate response of this by the mainstream media was really significant. They loved it. Suddenly, social media was basically to blame for everything bad. And there was a sense in which the kind of the mainstream press, certainly in England, and you could see it in America, kind of sat back, kind of like enjoying it, schadenfreude. Where it's like, oh, look, social media is getting a kicking. Social media had stripped away their advertising, stripped away public attention, stripped away their cultural significance, political importance. And all of a sudden, they basically, they could sit there and it was almost as if, following Baudrillard, who says about Disneyland, America has Disneyland in order to pretend to itself that it is real. In order to have something so fake, it can kind of convince itself that it outside of it is reality. And in the same way, suddenly the old press were presenting themselves as the guardians of truth. Look at us, we are actually the kind of the real news, look at the fake news over there. And the the kind of the people who had basically been working in journalism suddenly represented themselves almost as if they were back in the 1970s with big long sideburns and kind of smoking, hammering away on typewriters, you know, knocking out the Pentagon Papers as great kind of Washington Post guardians of truth. They took the high moral ground against uh, social media itself. Where this began to backfire for them was also by uh, mid-December when the Pope decided to weigh in on this. And he made this rather bizarre comment. I think the media have to be very clear, very transparent, and um, not fall into, no offence intended, the sickness of coprophilia. That is, always wanting to cover scandals, covering nasty things, even if they're true. Even if they're true. And since people have a tendency towards the sickness of coprophagia, a lot of damage can be done. Coprophagia means eating poo. Swallowing poo, so to speak. Now, I, I, I will offend people here. I just found this hysterical. This is a person who, at some point in his early life, picked up the Bible, read it about, you know, oh, look, the world's being created in six days. You know, there's a 900-year-old man. There's a talking snake in the Garden of Eden. He thought to himself, yeah, I believe every single word of that. That is so true, in fact, that I'm going to devote my entire life to this religion and become the head of the entire institution. I think if anyone has a right to lecture others on not swallowing material that perhaps they shouldn't, maybe the Pope himself should rethink his critique of fake news. Um, Putting it politely. What happened very soon after that was by January, Trump was beginning to kind of take office. And and immediately he had the problem of some people started posting a comparison of his inauguration crowds where people were not quite as excited maybe and um, Obama's inauguration crowds. And Sean Spicer suddenly insisted in public 
that Donald Trump actually did have the largest audience ever to witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. As we sat there looking at these two photos thinking, no, he doesn't. That, and it's that moment in George Orwell, it's like, how many fingers am I holding up? It is four. Where simultaneously you have the absolute lie and you're physically presented with the evidence right in front of your eyes until you have to sit there basically tortured to death and say it's four. This is kind of a remarkable thing because politicians have lied for a long time, but they've rarely lied while standing there in front of the actual evidence that disproves their lie. And it's that kind of almost the obscenity and the transparency, the, the honesty of the lie is a totally new political situation. And he was immediately defended by a whole range of um, people, including uh, his senior advisor. He simply referred to alternative facts. You've got your facts, I've got my facts. It's just a question of alternative facts today. One of my favorites was the um, Trump White House press conference, the first ever press conference he did which was a kind of stream of lack of consciousness, in a sense, where he simply kind of set off on one thing, and it, then it kind of became anything he wanted to say that popped into his head as he went along. And it included this kind of attack on the press. The press has become so dishonest, if we don't talk about it, we're doing a tremendous disservice to the American people. Tremendous disservice. We have to talk about it. We have to find out what's going on, because the press, honestly, is out of control. The level of dishonesty is out of control. I ran for president to represent the citizens of our country. I'm here to change the broken system so it serves their families and their communities well. I'm talking, and really talking, on this very entrenched power structure. And what we're doing is we're talking about the power structure. We're talking about its entrenchment. As a result, the media is going through what they have to go through oftentimes, through to oftentimes distort, not all the time, and some of the media is fantastic, I have to say, honest and fantastic, but much of it is not. The distortion, and we'll talk about it. You'll be able to ask me questions about it. We're not going to let it happen, because I'm here again to take my message straight to the people. What that message actually was, if you can unpick that grammar, you're a better person than I am. But there was a kind of dog whistle politics in here, whereby actually the system was broken, media is broken, media is dishonest, not all of it, there's still good stuff like Fox News, but basically there's a kind of distortion and fakery in news. And this is really where we arrived to, within the space of from November 2016 to January 2017, fake news had changed. And it went from being, in the public discourse, really honestly fakes in a sense, totally fake news stories on social media to being actually an accusation against all media, and in particular the mainstream media itself, who suddenly came in for systematic attack. Whereupon, it's a world now where you can simply denounce anything you like as fake news, or you can kind of basically kind of claim anything you like, and anyone who opposes what you said, that also is simply a form of fake news. And it led to the same press who actually had been very happy about social media getting a kicking suddenly decided actually, oh, there's a problem at the moment and there's a crisis, a crisis in truth itself. And a whole series of books have since been published about this problem of truth. The problems of fake news are becoming well known. The problem for the mainstream media is there's an element of obvious truth in what Trump was saying. I hate to say that. Because there's the famous Whig theory of the press, the kind of liberal theory of the press, which holds that the point of the press is as a guardian and repository of truth, and they will hold authority to account, pursuing truth above all else to serve the people. And they serve this role in a kind of an ideal liberal democratic kind of theory. They serve this role as kind of mediating between authority and the people to inform the people and hold authority to account. 
And it's a nice idea, and they, they do sometimes do it. Now and then, they do play this role. But we also know that the mainstream press, newspapers, first of all, they're commercial businesses, and they have commercial biases. We also know that they are owned by particular owners who like to put their own political view across, so they have political biases. All of this means that, actually, they're not quite as dedicated to the truth as they claim to be. There's also a discipline, a kind of discipline which doesn't have the best reputation. It's called media studies, communication studies, journalism studies. And over a century or so, actually, well, really over since the post-war period, it's actually developed a kind of a broad-ranging critique of how the media operate. And to a large extent, a lot of it is de developed around just simply the idea that news is, for example, a construction. And it's a very obvious point. It's all about the way in which kind of what news is selected, what news values are kind of are used here, which news is seen as important, how are we going to report it, what images, what words are we going to use. We can see that there isn't simply a kind of main line to truth in the media, that actually the world is taken, filtered, processed, edited, combined, and presented to us with a certain kind of in a certain package. It doesn't mean it's fake in the sense that the world is still out there operating in that way. But it does at least mean that we can recognise the constructedness of news. That's a kind of very simple kind of basic introduction to media class kind of uh, point to make. But media studies itself has various traditions, and the one that I've always been most interested in is a kind of slightly to the side, kind of marginal, radical tradition which sees media as doing more than simply constructing news, but actually sees all forms of technology and media, like McLuhan really, as kind of creating environments for us that we live within. And there's a whole series of thinkers, Borstin on the image from 1961, Debord on the spectacle, Bojo is my favourite, who really argue that what we have is kind of media form kind of realities for us in the sense of epistemological realities, how we know the world, the reality that is brought to us is simply the reality that is really kind of constructed for us around us. It forms an enveloping kind of reality. So when I watch the kind of Gulf War on television, for example, actually I know nothing about the Gulf War. It's simply my immediate experience is very limited. My entire knowledge of the world, almost up to travelling to Norway, really just came from simply the media, the news, and it forms basically an epistemological background to our lives, which means that we're not necessarily simply talking about a crisis in truth. That's not necessarily the best way to understand this. But rather, the idea, the better idea is perhaps that we've, media have formed particular kind of bubbles for us, an epistemological bubble. And it's these bubbles that are, in a sense, being transformed by ongoing developments in technology. And it's worth pointing out here that we can see that, for, certainly for most of my life, speaking as somebody who was kind of like growing up in the 1970s, there was, if you like, a kind of mainstream bubble of kind of broadcast media that dominated kind of the, the world that I grew up in. And it was a world, for example, it was aimed at broad demographic and taste. It had to kind of cater for the majority. So there was nothing that extreme. There was nothing that likely to put anybody off. It had to kind of appeal to as many people as possible in order to either get advertising revenue or justify a licensing fee. There was always professional codes of conduct. We have kind of like, you know, the BBC guidelines, for example, editorial guidelines. And its broadcast media was typically regulated both by government and by specific laws around things like copyright, obscenity, etc. Which meant that basically what you got was not reality in a sense, but actually a preformed, almost pre-chewed reality which you lived within. There was stuff that simply you would never see on television. Two girls, one cup would never be shown in the afternoon on television. The goatsy would 
would never appear in your newspaper. If you've no idea what I'm talking about, do not Google any of those. Um, and also, they were constrained, as kind of Chomsky says, by advertisers and needing to retain the goodwill of advertisers. So really, what we've kind of lost, what's transformed, is not necessarily truth itself, but actually how we've organised reality and kind of conceived of our experiences of truth. And it began to break down in the 1990s in America with the rise of cable and satellite by 19... Uh, when was it? Oh, 1996, was it, when Fox News comes on? You begin to get niche news, which is important. In 1988 in America, they abandoned the fairness doctrine, which required impartiality in broadcasting, which meant that you could get, see the rise of radio shock jocks. And these were like the alt-right of their day, basically old white men sitting there, fulminating against the world of political correctness and changing times. But they were allowed to pretty much say whatever they wanted. But really it was the internet that began to break this down through the 1990s, because what the internet did was basically allow you to find whatever it was you wanted. And it didn't matter whether it was some obscure sexual kink, or literally some kind of like, you know, the kinks itself in terms of your taste in music, or if you're into obscure 60s garage and surf rock, there was a community there of other people like you which the mainstream media never really served, or only served in a very poor way. The, uh, basically, a lot of political movements realised quite early that they could exploit this, and that um, the internet offered them a space to build communities to discuss things that were not discussed within the mainstream bubble. And in particular, the extreme right moved onto the internet quite early and set up communities and websites, neo-Nazism, white supremacism, the male movement, manosphere, the conspiracy theorist movements, all of these flourished online. But it took until about post-2004, Web 2.0, really 2008 plus really is a period when there's a kind of broader explosion of our kind of productive power, our ability to, uh, to live online which really represented the kind of the fractalization, the bursting of one bubble into every single bubble possible. Uh, Ellie Parisa refers to this as kind of filter bubbles. Um, I use the term media with a hyphen. And both of us are really just trying to suggest that it's this individual way of actually experiencing the world. We kind of organize individually our own experiences, our own ecology of technologies, platforms, news sources, interests, etc. It's worth pointing out that there isn't a single person in this room today who since they woke up and all the time they've looked at their phone or the internet or whatever has had the same experience as anyone else in the room. You've all had totally different experiences depending upon your personal messages, your personal preferences. Um, in this sense, we end up with a kind of world of infinite kind of bubbles. Um, and this seems quite an interesting thing in terms of um, Guy Debord wrote about the society of the spectacle. And he, did, he said, the spectacle is a collection, is not a collection of images. It's a social relation mediated by images. So I've changed that, because I think actually something else has gone here. With a world of infinite kind of bubbles, actually the spectacle is a collection of images, but it's a collection of images of ourselves, essentially. And the spectacle that we have today is not the mass media spectacle, but a world in which our social relationships is essentially with ourselves, mediated by images of ourselves. Um, the rise of the selfie is kind of too ripe, really, to ignore. And it forms a kind of self-paparazzization in terms of we are all celebrities today, but celebrities to our own kind of, in a sense, subscribed network of people who will find us interesting. So that we're all kind of constantly walking around, simply taking photos of ourselves, informing everyone of like the magnificent, important banality of our life. 
And in so doing, we're doing it to a point where we're even kind of destroying nature in the process. There was a story yesterday about how in Amsterdam they're having to kind of rope off tulip fields. This was um, poppy fields in California, which at a certain point all these kind of like flowers came out and they were inundated with hundreds of people who simply wanted to kind of walk over it all to take photographs. Maybe actually all the climate kind of movement has kind of got it wrong. It's not industrial emissions and carbon. It's actually people with phones that will actually be what causes the death of the entire environment. Um, and this was my favourite ever photo, so to speak, in which the entire world, literally, all of history and all of reality, is simply reduced to a background for your own selfies. This is Princess Brianna, selfie in Auschwitz concentration camp, smiley face. That smiley face itself is the kind of the death of us all. Adorno said to write poetry after Auschwitz is, is barbarism. Adorno would be having a heart attack at a little smiley emoji. That's really the end of it. Jean Baudrillard says, um, when he wrote about the Gulf War, he used the phrase, the Gulf War did not take place. And one interpretation of that, actually, is the actual way you interpret the French. Um, because it could also be translated as did not have a place, did not take a place, could not literally take a place in the world. And in a sense, reality and history today can't even take a place, because you can't even see them, because all that matters is this great gurning face in the, back, in the foreground, and the whole of everything is basically pushed into the background. Um, so what we have is kind of the self today as a kind of permanent production and mode of performance. And bizarrely, we could even suggest that actually capitalism here has resolved all of its problems, because Marx's great critique of capitalism was that it was exploitative and alienating. And actually, today, we have a form of capitalism that isn't exploitative because you don't have to do this. You don't have to be on Facebook. You don't have to take part in anything. It's not even alienating because it's now about yourself. Capitalism has perfected with something like Facebook its operation to actually disappear the basis of any possible critique of itself. But what we have is a, is a, a self that's instead in a permanent form of crisis. It's an unstable self, ironically, as it presents itself to the world, because it could instantly disappear or not get enough recognition. This was the um, Australia's top model who got very angry one day because she received only 14 likes on an Instagram photo. And she had a kind of public meltdown saying, after going away on an amazing holiday stroke road trip, I came home, came home to find my post on New Adventures had only 14 likes, the lowest amount I've ever had on Instagram. Her post was, say yes to New Adventures. I mean, there's nothing more banal in existence than that phrase. I have to say I'm pretty shocked because this either means that people, A, don't like me having New Adventures, as if I'm not allowed fun, or B, it means po people don't like New Adventures. Either way, I have to say to all those people who don't like my posts and don't like having fun is, you all suck. This massive, world-shattering meltdown from not having enough likes. And the obvious way of kind of like critiquing this is, as always, to blame social media. But I think it's worth putting this in slightly more context and looking at this as part of a kind of transformation of the self itself under neoliberalism. It's a world, neoliberalism is a world of individualised labour, whether it's a kind of gig economy worker who's self-employed, working through apps, all the way through to the kind of professional, so the kind of the academic who constantly has to keep their Twitter going and has to keep their bio updated and has to be kind of like impactful on social media. 
It's a world of individualized control where not only gig economy workers get continually monitored with metrics, whether you work in an Amazon factory or you're a university lecturer in England, basically you're continually monitored and there's metrics based upon your performance, which are then used to evaluate you on an individual level. All risk today is individualized. So journalists had editors and lawyers. I just have basically my own stupid mind and my ability to actually nearly get myself sacked online simply from posting weird stuff on Facebook. Um, we have basically the problem of keeping our reputation. We have the law. In England, we have a range of laws, which means that people can go to prison for up to two years for posting malicious communications or offensive communications online. We also have, in a sense, a kind of world of individualized politics today. The left wing and right wing have moved towards kind of forms of identity politics. And this is seen as a kind of like hard left kind of uh, political position, but it isn't. It's essentially a neoliberal position. It's not about the community or collectivity. It's about some form of identity that is yours, a complete individualization here. And I like this person who's kind of very influenced by Baudrillard. Byung-Chul Han is a kind of South Korean philosopher um, who's written about the kind of neoliberal self today. And he says that the self today is no longer a subject, it's a project. It's a kind of an ongoing process whereby we all have to continually produce and maintain ourself and self-optimize and exploit ourselves in order to kind of basically kind of um, advance. He writes about how everyone today is an entrepreneur of the self. Contemporary society is an achievement society that enforces isolation. The achievement subject exploits itself till it collapses. Neoliberalism transforms workers into entrepreneurs. Today, everyone is an auto-exploiting laborer in his or her own enterprise, from the gig economy worker to the professional trying to advertise themselves. Unlimited self-production, absolute competition with oneself leads to the violence of self-destruction. And he says, whereas the industrial era had the pathologies of alienation and the violence against the body, the kind of contemporary neoliberal era has a kind of basically the pathologies of violence against the self from the self. It's a world of burnout, exhaustion, depression, mental collapse and ADHD. And it's worth pointing out that all the discussions of mental health problems today, and the fact these are again blamed on social media, actually it's part of the broader kind of neoliberal transformation of society and the economy. It's another thing that's actually bringing us back simply to our own realities. It's a way in which we don't actually connect with anyone else because of our own mental health problems. Um, so what we've seen in terms of this kind of so-called crisis of truth is really also a crisis in other institutions rather than truth. One of the institutions we have a crisis in is kind of mainstream media. For a long time, <coughs> we know they've kind of squandered the goodwill of people with their scandals, with their biases, with their basically kind of treatment of people. The British tabloid press are one of the worst offenders for this. But something else has kind of happened whereby in a world of Web 2.0, we're a little bit sick of being talked to. This was a world of broadcasting where the same celebrities were on the news every day. And no one can cope with that. If I followed you around for the rest of the day simply talking at you, you wouldn't last the day before killing me. Because we can't handle simple... In fact, hopefully, I'll just last this, this class, uh, this, this, this event. But we can't handle that level of simple unilateral kind of um, attack, if you like. And... From this point of view, the kind of mainstream media look out of date. They're telling us what they think. Well, who are they to tell us what, what, they, what they think? Why can't I tell you what I think? That's what the world of Web 2.0 is about. And we get increasingly angry when we're simply treated like people who simply have to receive the gifts of the gods from above. And um, the journalists themselves have kind of realised this. This was a um, LA Times columnist from 2007. 
The address on the bottom of this column, that's a pathetic, confused death knell of the once proud newspaper industry. That's his email address. I want nothing to do with it. Here's what my internet-fearing editors have failed to understand. I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk at you. A column is not my attempt to engage in a conversation with you. I've more than enough people to converse with, and I don't listen to them either. Not everything should be interactive. A piece of work that stands on its own without explanation or defence takes on its own power. If Martin Luther put his 95 theses on the wall, then had all the townsfolk send him their comments, and he had to write back to all of them and clarify what he meant, some of these theses would have been watered down, there'd have been no diet of worms. Then for the rest of history, school pupils learning about the Reformation would have nothing to make fun of, etc. A lot of email screeds argue that in return for the privilege of broadcasting my opinion, I have the responsibility to listen to you. I don't. No more than you've got a responsibility to read me. I'm not an elected servant. I'm an arrogant, solipsistic, attention-needy freak who pretends to have an opinion about everything. I don't have time to listen to you. I barely have time to listen to me. It's a very honest explanation of journalism. And if we're not exactly kind of enamoured of journalism... Equally, I think we can kind of fairly say, certainly in most of Europe and America, there's a kind of, we're also increasingly disconnected from the political elite, but for very good reasons equally. The whole attempt to kind of lie to us systematically and invent information and claims about the Iraq war, the lying to us about the effects of the Iraq war, which it took until WikiLeaks essentially in 2010 to kind of begin to expose. The 2008 crash, which was of course created by the kind of deregulation of international markets and uh, basically the operation of kind of neoliberalism and its kind of raw estate. And then how do kind of governments respond to that? Well, in England, we elected a Conservative government who then claimed that the problem was government spending. That was what caused the crash, and it was Labour's fault. Therefore, what we needed was more neoliberalism, in which the poor basically had to suffer through another decade of austerity. This was a complete and utter lie. Um, the Snowden revelations about governments turned us against governments, or at least made us more cynical about them. The Panama Papers exposed the operations of kind of the powerful and the wealthy. And the increasing, astonishing, kind of division in society between those who had and those who did not. The rise of a kind of global, kind of cosmopolitan elite who were earning so much money as to be almost unthinkable. At the same time as many people had wage stagnation or in-work poverty and were left behind. All of this basically created a situation that was easy to exploit. Because the problem is that once you have a world of individual realities, that isn't the important point. The point is that it can be exploited. The point is that it can be used. And there's two particular ways that we realise you could actually use all this kind of um, material. One was simply electoral manipulation. Facebook basically in 2012 realised that it had a financial problem. How do you kind of get investors to keep investing in Facebook for an IPO when actually its profits are very low? What's its long-term future? Its advertising model at the time was simply, we've got lots of people. And that's lovely, but that's not enough for profits. So what they did in 2012 was basically introduce a whole, from then on, introduce a whole set of systems to enable the absolute precise fine-grained targeting of exact demographics in exact areas, all the way down to very small groups of people or individuals. And that made consumers, that made kind of advertisers very happy, it made companies very happy, because you could reach exactly the person you wanted with exactly the message you wanted. The problem is that politicians realised the same thing. And we move from the kind of Howard Dean Obama campaigns of 2004 to 2008, which used social media for kind of bottom-up emergent kind of participation. 
By 2012, Obama basically realized that you could use this information in a different way, as a kind of top-down method to simply kind of target individuals with very precisely honed messages. And essentially, basically, this transformed politics itself. In 2015, the Conservatives in England won the election, and they beat, for example, the Liberal Democrats, who they'd been sharing power with. And they targeted 23 seats they wanted to win, and they actually got all 23. And the Lib Dems were, Liberal Democrats were confused because they hadn't seen a single Conservative um, canvasser on the streets. They thought they were walking away with it because there was no one on the streets. Turns out they just simply weren't on the streets. They were simply putting all their advertising spend on Facebook posts. And the implication of that is really important for democracy because actually what it means is they weren't talking to people. You don't even have to talk to people these days. You can simply control their vote. You hit their votes very precisely. And in a sense, you can kind of do this in a way, even at an individual level, with so-called dark posts. Dark posts are those which only particular people can see. And that has a significant implication for democracy in terms of we don't know who's receiving what information. There's no way of holding people to account. That you can break kind of any kind of electoral spending limits in kind of local regions. All of this is basically in a world of individualized realities. I can promise and say anything to you precisely with the exact message you want. I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to go fast. The second way that this kind of ha began to have an impact was obviously informational manipulation. And the Russian kind of social media manipulation was a very obvious example of this. But it was something that they'd already basically started doing themselves. It began in Russia itself. Russia, Putin's rise to power was accompanied by a kind of attempt to control domestic media. And he achieved this by controlling domestic television, later went on to try to kind of manipulate the, um, the internet. One of his key advisors was this guy, Vladislav Surkov, who was basically a kind of postmodernist. He was a kind of theatre director who'd read Baudrillard and various other people. And what he realised was something really simple, that actually you could create chaos and that that has the greatest effect. So what he did was he promoted, basically, he created and promoted anti-Putin groups. And he organised anti-Putin marches. And then he organised pro-Putin groups and marches and had them all basically meet and fight. And then he sat there going, well, I actually did it all. I created that group that's opposed to Putin and I created that group that's pro him. Until no one knew what the fuck was going on. Literally, everybody was so confused by reality that nobody could understand even what? There was no opposition when actually everything was part of the same chaotic, unstable lack of reality. And they, they honed these techniques domestically before applying them globally, first in Crimea and Ukraine, and then online through the internet research agency, this troll farm, leading us to this attack upon kind of Western elections in 2016, um, which combined kind of political support for right-wing parties, the hacking of kind of, for example, kind of American political system, democratic emails, and then doxing them. Normally when you hack, you do it for espionage and you keep the information. This was doxing. This was a troll technique. This was all about basically, let's just humiliate Clinton and her advisors. And then a whole realm of social media manipulation and disinformation. You create pro-Black Lives Matter pages, you create anti-pro-Black Lives Matter pages, and then you simply watch them all basically fight. They, they supported kind of Trump campaigners, they supported anti-Trump campaigners, because simply they wanted chaos, division. They wanted simply, in a sense, instead of attacking, which we feared with cyber war, the kind of critical infrastructure of energy and transport, etc., they attacked the political and cultural critical uh, infrastructure itself to basically create a situation with a clash of realities to the point where actually nobody knew what was going on. And actually, you couldn't even expose the Russian information war, which was interesting. 
traditional covert operations basically usually get found out. If a state does something to try and manipulate another nation and they get found out, they, it's rather embarrassing and they have to sit there going, it wasn't us, but everyone knows it was. But in troll warfare, actually part of the burn Part of the lulls is the humiliation of the other party. So actually, you sit there going, you know, basically Putin smirks, going, no, it's nothing to do with us. When we know it was him, he knows it was him, and he's enjoying himself. It's a snark warfare. It's lulls warfare. Becomes an important part of this kind of, um, the, kind of the, the spectacle of kind of... Um, of, of kind of the clash of realities. Um, we know, I'll, I'll move rapidly through this, that, that tr um, Trump himself was kind of elected in part also because of the support of the kind of online trolls, the alt-right trolls from 4chan. Trump himself has also kind of obviously kind of taken on a kind of troll-like relationship to reality where he believes he can say anything. And what's interesting here, if you go back to 2010, you find this important speech from Hillary Clinton on remarks on internet freedom. And the idea was she was basically saying, you know, okay, there's bad things on the net, but the net is good. And the net will basically produce democracy. It opens up debate and it opens up transparency. And all you authoritarian countries out there, you've got it coming. You better watch out. And essentially what happened was something very, very different. Because it turns out that the real threat of the democratic internet wasn't to authoritarian countries. It was actually to democracies. The real irony of the democratizing tendencies of the internet is that what it smashed most are Western political and media representational systems, because they've always basically been simulations. And this is a controversial point, uh, which I've now left not enough time for, but essentially the whole of Western representative democracy has been built on the need to keep out public participation. It's part of the history of the fear of the mob, the fear of democracy, allocracy. Even the, the American kind of... Uh, <clears throat> electoral system is an example, where until 20, uh, 1913, when the Senate finally became kind of elected by the people, it was set up as a system in which only one branch of government was directly elected by the people. The whole point of representative government was a group of people, usually property qualification, but generally better people, will represent you. Not as delegates, not as people who simply have to do as they're told because you've told them, but because they are full individuals and it's their moral weight and individuality that, that kind of will, will carry the day. This form of representative democracy was always basically a simulation. It was a simulation of agreement, a simulation of kind of almost kind of like, you know, how society ideally should work. And what the Web 2.0 did was blow it apart, because suddenly you don't need to have a representative. You can directly give any opinion you want, however stupid or ill-informed or racist or abusive it is. And actually, these entire political systems have been built, structured upon keeping out these kind of voices. The media systems operated in the same way. At exactly the same time, the kind of representation was becoming, or universal suffrage was taking off in the early 20th century. Norway was ahead of this, obviously, with kind of female emancipation, female uh, suffrage. But it's around the same time, around 1911 to 1920, a whole range of nations in Europe suddenly discover kind of universal suffrage. And it's exactly the same time we're seeing the rise of broadcast media, the rise of the BBC, who explicitly called themselves the voice of the people. At the same time in the UK, we had the rise of press barons, people with newspapers with millions of, kind of, of people reading them. And they thought they had a political mandate because they had all these readers. They were the voices of the people. And this is still how newspapers like The Sun present themselves. And essentially, all of these are simulations. They are simulations, literally, not in the sense that they're untrue, but in the sense that they're constructions. And a lot of this comes down to like the liberal ideal, if you like, that we still have today of the kind of public sphere, as if there's a kind of perfect space of reason, debate, 
debate agreement in which we will move towards truth. And actually, there's many criticisms of the public sphere. One of the classic ones, arguably, is simply that the bourgeois public sphere is almost your first perfect filter bubble. It was people who were all the same, white, educated males who were wealthy, talking to other white, educated males who were wealthy about politics that they all agreed with. But this has somehow become the kind of ideal of how debate should operate in a kind of liberal democracy. We, it's using reason, not emotion. We will talk to each other and communicate and agree. All of this was always a kind of an attempt to kind of, in a sense, simulate perfect communication in a way that humans really were not part of that. And the response that we've had today from power is, in a sense, kind of um, very obvious. There's a demand for fact-checking. We want to get back to truth so that the system can work properly. How do we actually kind of bring us back to a system that works? In the UK, we're increasing laws against the individuals. You go to prison for what you say on social media. Um, we're introducing things like an age ID system for pornography, so effectively you have to prove to the government you're over 18 before you can even look at pornography. We're introducing an online harms white paper, which will produce a controlled internet that's possibly as great as you find in China and Russia. Um, um, we have national kind of attempts at regulation. Even America is now looking at regulation, EU regulation such as the GDPR. And in a sense, what we have is a systematic attempt to go back. There's an attempt by power, whoever that power may be, to reassert or rather reverse ourselves to the world of broadcast media in the sense of to try to put all of these kind of like systems back into the same regulatory frameworks, the same kind of condensed reality, the same mainstream reality in which everything that is kind of singular, everything that is different, everything that is radical or indigestible has been removed from it. It's an attempt to go backwards and it will fail inevitably. Um, as Surkov showed, a world with multiple unstable, debatable personal realities dissolves all dissent and critique into just another opinion. In a world where everyone's views are liberated and all extremes can be expressed, the traditional ideal communicative democratic space of the hard and public sphere is exposed as a privilege and control simulation it always was. Unfortunately, the mainstream media and journalism's attempt to defend themselves by rediscovering their values, laying claim to an elevated position of truth-telling and promoting their fact-checking is bound to fail. In a fractal information environment, that consensus of the real is irrecoverable. Instead, as the right understood, when reality becomes a free-for-all, reality itself becomes available for the taking. It becomes a weaponizable force for anyone with the power to seize and lay claim to it. This is what Trump achieved. Reality was seized and the valid claims of fake news were reversed back against the mainstream media themselves, sucking the reality out of their journalism and out of their profession to leave the accusation and appearance of hollow fakery. The sci-fi author Philip K. Dick famously said, if you think this world is bad, you should see some of the others. And this is precisely the world in which we're currently living in, which we have these multiple, very different and unstable realities. Just as a final kind of couple of points to wrap up, I've got a feeling actually that we may be looking in the wrong direction completely and that we're looking at the wrong crisis because the problem today isn't the lack of truth but the excess of truth. Not just in terms of personal truths and the fact we all have our own personal truths, but something very different. Because what's really taking place today is actually a massive production of data and harvesting of data about ourselves. And at the moment, we're kind of slightly worried about this with Facebook, and we think it's all about the phone. This is kind of basically the dinosaur age of data collection. Because what we're seeing is increasingly the Internet of Things, in which basically smart connected devices in the home, pretty much everything in the home could be connected, could have sensors in it, could 
gather information and data. Every building, every street lamp, every road could have sensors gathering and collecting data. If you add to that facial recognition, biometric systems, if you add to that the implant revolution that some people are kind of calling for or want, the chipping of individuals, if you add to it new forms of kind of biological data collection, biorhythms are now becoming algorithms with kind of Fitbits and other forms. We have things like smart condoms you can buy. Apparently it rates your performance. And I don't know, I'm an old-fashioned person, I think your partner should have a say in that, but no, it's between you and your condom these days. There's even things like, you know, sex toys which are linked to apps on the phone, and they've been discovered to be recording information about the use of the sex toy, including heat, vibration, when it's used, all of this, everything that you could possibly think of as being a personal form of data is now basically being produced and collected in remarkable ways. And it's going further. In China, for example, they have, um, in some of their kind of employment, such as certain train drivers, they put EEG caps on the workers so they can basically monitor their brain waves as well. This is a kind of future. And this, in a sense, is what I'm trying to argue, is actually this is going to be basically the real threat to democracy in the future. What we're facing is a world essentially of informational totalitarianism and kind of my final provocative thought is that we got totalitarianism wrong. When we think of totalitarianism, we still think of 20th century totalitarianism. Funny bloke in a uniform, shouting at a podium, I know that's me, shouting at a podium and he's got lots of supporters and there's basically big spectacles and rallies and there's terror caused by the police. And that isn't what totalitarianism is. Totalitarianism, I, I believe, literally, is a belief that the government should abolish the private and the public to leave the government allowing to access or monitor the totality of all life, including private life. And when you put it in that way, you begin to see that actually that's the place that we're moving to through corporate surveillance and the availability of that information for governments as well. And the desire for governments to ban encryption, the belief that they should have access to all of your phones, the rise of all these new forms of data collection, and the biggest one is going to be biometric and facial recognition technology. Essentially, we're going to be moving into a world where basically kind of like everything will be collected and you will be individually, personally um, basically monitored, accountable, and all of this data will be used against you in some way or form. All of this leads to a situation in which all our worries about the content of democracy, in terms of like fake news and whether or not people really understand the issues of the day and what they're voting for, all of this is in a sense a complete charade and a kind of farce. Because as we see with Cambridge Analytica and the attempt to election, the attempt to kind of manipulate you electorally, it doesn't really matter what you think or what you've read. What matters is how we can individually kind of basically get to you, monitor you, control you, and send you the correct messages. The real threat to democracy, and in this sense, democracy is already gone. We've already lost it. Isn't about the crisis of truth and fake news. It's actually about the basically the kind of the new era of big data and the way that that will be used against us by companies and governments. From that point of view, democracy is already on the way to disappearing. Thank you for putting up with that. I promise I'll now shut up. Okay, thank you, William, for these thought-provoking uh, ideas and for the good talk. We have um, some time for discussion and uh, questions, so uh, whenever you uh, take the word, please present yourself, and uh, if any of you others, the others want to eat and have drinks, please go on. Plenty left. Uh, I'll ask you a very simple, I'm, I'm, uh, my name is Hordan by the way. Um, at the Department for Nordic Literature. Um, I'll ask you a very simple and very difficult question. Let's say that you are in somehow in power 
Right. What would you do in order to uh, uh, change the direction, the dire consequences of the direction <coughs> in which we're going at the moment that you that you told us just now? Past what could be done? <coughs> yeah, I, partially. Uh, if we take apart your concept, then we're assuming there is a dire direction. And actually, what we might do is look back at the entire era of broadcasting, in which everyone had to listen to the same thing and consume the same thing and be told what to think by journalists and the politicians with simple kind of top-down messaging. It may be that that was a dire world that actually we lived in. So I'm not necessarily convinced that this is actually a bad world in which we live. I don't think people are necessarily good. Um, and I think, you know, the, what the internet does is obviously allow the kind of full range of everyone's interests and kind of politics to be expressed. But I'm not as convinced it's a bad thing. Because at the moment, what's happening is we're being sold a narrative about the toxicity of the internet in order, basically, to justify, basically, uh, what we're talking about is kind of new means of regulation and control. And we can all agree on that when we think about neo-Nazism, we think about hate speech and abuse. We all immediately think, yes, we need more regulation. And I, I, I kind of slow down at that point and worry, because actually what we're seeing is we're losing the only medium that has ever been created that's let anyone talk to anyone. And we're actually losing it, not simply because of kind of governments and kind of organisations wanting to regulate it, but because we're asking them to. Because we're so frightened of the internet that we want them to regulate it and we want to go back to a nice, safe world. And speaking as someone who is a troll, and I admit this, I would not be empowered. If I was, I'd attempt to destabilise everything I could, including myself. So it, the metaphor doesn't quite work. But what I see is, what I'm trying to get at is everything that we think we need, which is simply to kind of close it all down, shut people up, send them to prison, regulate the internet, regulate platforms. There's a reason for that, and there's a real appeal of that. But at the same time, really what we're saying is we want to go back to a different era of technology and truth, and we want to be locked back into a bubble. And maybe bubble is the wrong metaphor, maybe it's a cage. And from that point of view, part of me thinks I'd rather live in a world in which people can abuse me than in a world in which I can only be abused by a government. There's um, the, the kind of the American comedian, George Carlin, and I apologize for the profanity, says if you take away the right to say fuck, you take away the right to say fuck the government. And I'd rather live in a world of trolls and abuse and deal with that because I think the biggest threat is not individuals, but actually governments. But you, but you said that it's going in an authoritarian direction. So what you're advocating is deregulation, or just let it all uh, flower. Yes, yeah. I am. I'm kind of moving back. I mean, a part of me, I, kind of, I veer between a kind of socialism that wants a state that will help people. But then on personal individual issues, freedom of speech, I kind of veer towards the original ethos of the internet, which is a kind of libertarian anarchism. And I think that world was highly productive, and I think it was highly culturally important. And everything we do today on Facebook with all of our memes and all of our jokes and everything, it's really just simply still part of that tradition. And I, I, I will defend the kind of the anarchism, if you like, because I'd rather have that than kind of basically people being put in, in prison for what they're doing. In Britain, just a quick example, we had the Grenfell Tower, where 87 people died in a tower. And last year, um, six people were arrested because they had a little bonfire and they had an effigy in their back garden of Grenfell Tower and had little pictures of people at the windows. And they were all there going, oh, look at the people burning. And this leaked onto social media, causing outrage, because that's all we do today is outrage. The next day, six people were arrested. To this day, no one's been arrested for Grenfell Tower. 
one person is now being prosecuted because they couldn't get everyone. The laws don't quite work. They went for a public order offence. It didn't work. So they've got to go for a communication offence, but then you can only get the one person who shared the video. They wanted to get all of them. So far, no one's gone to prison for Grenfell Tower. It's a case of, like, we live in a world in which the internet is so dangerous that apparently a video of an effigy is worth locking people up for, but actually the deaths of 87 poor people, that doesn't matter in reality at all. So I'm not as convinced that the internet is as dangerous, perhaps, as we're being told. Okay, any more uh, questions? Yes? There's, there's one here and one there. Thank you for a very uh, interesting talk. Thank you. But I was interested in... Can you in, say in, who you are? Yeah, my name is Julian. I'm an art historian. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I was interested in, in uh, hearing if you have might, um, if you could consider what this, your analysis would mean in relation to the truths that you produce in ac academia. Uh, because you didn't speak about the... No. Oh, well. Yeah, that's true. Analysis. Actually, I've never even thought about that. Um, uh, I think truth is actually a kind of uh, much more problematic philosophical concept, and there's many types of truth and forms of truth. What I think is important to realise is that we've never lived under truth. We never have. What we have is simply that before this great era of broadcasting, when we could all apparently be... And before that, you've got the broadcast structure of the church. The medieval church was a broadcast institution. It kind of created its own theology, ideology, and then disseminated it through its kind of media system, if you like, the churches and the texts. So in a sense, these are kind of ways in which we've lived under truth before, in terms of its ability of certain groups or kind of ideologies to impose themselves upon a collective. But I still don't think we quite lived under truth. And on an individual level, we don't. Or at least we believe there's a shared truth and there isn't. Because I'm standing here next to someone and I have no idea what they think. I'm a complete atheist. They could be the most religious person in the world. And we're still living together in the world, but under completely different realities. There is a complete and utter separation in realities between us, as there is between all of us. So from that point of view, it's kind of like, you know, uh, academia is in a sense kind of a complex kind of institution because it simultaneously wants to produce truths and it wants to tell us about the world and kind of be very precise and nail down the world in whichever discipline at the same time as it also undercuts it by pointing out well this is still a construction it's relative it's kind of this particular perspective allows for that if you believe in these scientific laws then that will result so actually I think to, to, to accept the multiplicity of truths isn't really a threat to truth itself. And I don't think, I think if anything, the threat that we've always had is when we live under a truth, rather than kind of begin to understand the multiplicity. Yeah, a bit, but I was thinking a little, a little bit more in the sense of Wimler too. Uh, right. About defending uh, the situatedness yeah. of our disciplines, yes. but at the same time also defend our results. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm in media studies, and when I began to look into the history of media studies in order to critique it, obviously you realise the whole discipline was essentially founded either to train people to go into the media, or it was founded with government and media funding in order to help the media work better and help the government give their message better. So it was all basically about how do we understand audiences in order to actually reach them better and affect them more. The whole first primary history of media studies as a discipline, journalism studies, communication studies, is basically, it's about how to help power. 
and how to help those with power give their message more. It's only in the post-war period, after the Second World War, that you begin to see critical traditions. In fact, you know, Adorno, Horkheim were some of the first to kind of critique the media as media. Um, so there is that kind of the situatedness of, of kind of disciplines is, is an important part of that in terms of if you look at your own discipline, then most of us will find we're, we're not actually as morally pure and blameless as perhaps we'd like to think we are sitting privileged in kind of a nice university, kind of apparently kind of pursuing the truth. Dis from a disciplinary perspective, that's rarely been the case. Yeah, but at the same time, there are truths that we need to be defended. For example, the glaciers that have been. Yes. So it is a dilemma, anyway. Yes, yeah, the truth that glaciers are melting, etc. Or I could, for example, just be religious and say, it's your fault, God is punishing you. That's my truth. So really, it's not necessarily that there isn't truth. There are truths. There, there are truths. And some truths have better evidence than others. Some truths have more behind them than others. But actually, in a sense, what we're coming to is something that's always been a problem, which is the fact that truths are weaponizable. They're basically kind of modes of contestation. And I think I'm totally with you. We need the contestation in which the scientific facts win over people who don't believe this. But the people who don't believe this are equally clear that they need to win over these people who believe in scientific truths. When you see it more as contestation, then it doesn't really matter in the sense who's right and who's wrong. It matters who wins. And that's why this has become such an important political issue. Hi, thanks. Uh, thanks for a thought-provoking uh, presentation. Uh, my name is David Bogosian. I'm a media scholar. All right. Well. Um, there's a lot, you covered a lot of ground, uh, a, lot, a lot of things to be, to be commented on uh, about here, but I have two questions. Yeah. Uh, one is a follow-up of uh, the idea of the anarchy on the internet, from, or, or giving up on regulations, yeah. to be understood you correctly. Uh, and for me, that's, is, isn't that also a question of leaving the internet to Silicon Valley, to Mark Zuckerberg, to Google, to Amazon? Is that, is that, isn't that the alternative? I mean, talking about anarchy on the internet, yeah. while you have these huge companies, actually yeah. four or five, controlling the internet, yeah. and giving up on political regulation and trust in our political systems, with its thoughts and ports and so on. Yeah. Is that a good idea? That's my one question. Yeah. The other one is about representing, uh, as you, uh, media studies, uh, also responsible for teaching, educating journalists yeah. uh, and, and, and communication scholars of uh, various kinds. What's your advice to, 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 to me? Uh, uh, Don't to, ask the first to, question. To, <laughs> to what should we, how should we educate journalists moving into this media world yeah. that you described now? Yeah. The first question is incredibly important, and you're completely right. Because we, basically, Lawrence Lessig says, code is law, and there is no kind of commons on the internet. Everything is basically private infrastructure, private platforms, etc. Um, and in a sense, then, we have a kind of whole series of actors here in terms of ordinary people. Very simply, you could also say governments and you could say the private corporations, the big technology companies, who are as bigger and more powerful than anyone has ever been in that sense before. And I think there is a kind of, in a sense, to say that I want a government that's uh, internet's unregulated, you're right, that runs the risk of simply letting these companies run absolute riot, with very obvious implications for privacy, very obvious implications for individuals. 
My problem is that we're thinking about the way to solve that problem is by bringing in governments. And that's where I get kind of slightly frightened. So my ideal, in a sense, if I did have an ideal, a kind of more anarchistic ideal, is we need to move back to a kind of an earlier form of the internet, which was more decentralised, distributed. We need to do that perhaps in more radical ways and think about actually how do we physically kind of hold our data ourselves in such a way that actually no one even gets our data when we use it. Are there alternatives to Facebook? Are there alternatives to these platforms in which we have basically much more privacy protections built in structurally and in the technology rather than simply allowing everyone to get all this information? And I think so I, I can still hold on to my ideal without wanting all the power to be given to corporations. The problem at the moment is that none of this stuff is being developed or is taking off, or we're not looking for that in the public sense yet. You can, for example, use Tor. You can use kind of PGP. You can use DuckDuckGo for search instead of Google. We're not doing it. So on an individual level, there's stuff that we could do to kind of both hurt governments and both hurt corporations. Um, <clears throat> but on an, on an immediate level, there's an obvious need also for governments to regulate on things that would immediately help us. And the EU GDPR and kind of regulations are a very good example of that. So I'm quite honestly torn. And I, I'm torn in the same way my politics is torn, because I'm a socialist who wants a welfare state. But I'm also terrified of government and I want them out of my private life and personal expressions and not putting me in prison for what I say. And I think the same kind of thing works for me online. I want, I want protection where I want it. But I also want protection from government in that sense, uh, if that makes sense. But you're right, that is a fundamental question and a kind of hole which I didn't address. In terms of kind of my advice, you know, in terms of, you know, advice for kind of training journalists, it's like we might as well train lift attendants. Because this isn't going to happen. There isn't going to be journalism in the way that we think of it. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because journalism itself has changed. Because journalism literally began as a personal thing. It began as little pamphlets where people wrote up. It was journals. It was actually the kind of the personal production of opinions. If you go back to like the, the little kind of you know, chat books of the, the books of the kind of English Civil War in the 1640s, it was basically anyone with an opinion scratching it down and then trying to publish it. Today, that's what we have. We have a world which anyone can basically publish and write anything. My, I've always been interested in the fact that the kind of the great period where we got all this representational government in the early 20th century around the time of the First World War, we suddenly get universal suffrage and representation takes off. It's at exactly the same time that the avant-garde were producing a different form of participation. The futurist Serrata, the Dadaist Cabaret Voltaire, wanted a mode of participation where simply they wound up the audience and got them so angry that basically they had to respond with violence or participate. And the Dardis in 1919 in Germany produced a magazine. It was called Each Man His Own Football. Jedermann sign einer Fussball or whatever it is. And it was followed with a, a picture of a man who was a football for some bizarre reason. But I've always loved the idea of what, what's a game of football like in which everyone's got a football. It's sheer chaos, but I'd love to watch that. I would really, and I'd enjoy playing it rather than watching it. And maybe that's what the internet is. It's every man his own garage band, his own Final Cut Pro, his own printing press, his own everything. Every man his own television studio. And the kind of sheer anarchic Dardarist chaos of that, including all the resulting violence, is something that part of me deep down enjoys. Um, in terms of kind of education, I think most of kind of the, the UK traditions and the Anglo traditions focus very much on kind of broadcast media and broadcast concepts. So even when they look at new media, digital media, they're looking at them through broadcast concepts, an audience. We're not an audience anymore. In fact, it's totally flipped. So in a broadcast era, television companies made content, sent it at you, and you were an audience. 
Today, with your mobile phone, even if you're not on it, it's pinging out signals. And there's a technology company now that is an audience of you. Everything in terms of the empowerment of you as a producer, either explicitly in terms of what you do or implicitly in terms of all the data that pours from you, means that you are now the producer in this ecology. So who's the audience? And the obvious answer is the audience is all the technology companies. Everyone who is actually kind of taking that data and using it. There's been a complete reversal there. So the concept of audience doesn't work in the traditional way that we think it does. The concept of producer doesn't work. Um, concepts of representation, I don't even think necessarily representation matters these days. So my son was doing uh, media studies, kind of O-level, it was kind of like age 16. And he was doing, um, he was doing magazine adverts. His generation don't buy magazines, don't see magazines, and adverts for perfume, he didn't want perfume anyway. And then he was supposed to analyse the adverts. What does the red mean? What does the dress mean? What's a woman doing in the advert? And that mode of representational advertising is dead in the water. Because we don't need to create all these images and kind of stories when we simply know that you looked at, um, I don't know, a, an advert for a watch. So here's more adverts for watches. And if you really want to watch, you'll buy one. It's you simply, it's not presentation, it's not, not representation, it's simply presentation. Here is a thing that you're interested in. Which means that we have to critique the discipline and critique what we teach in a much more radical sense. And most of what's actually happening in our, our students' media today isn't reflected in the courses that we teach. And one reason for that is because we're old and we don't know their worlds and we can't know these individualised worlds. But it means that we're sitting there talking to people about media when we've got no right to. Hi, my name is Linda Insta. I'm a final year law student. Oh, right. I currently write my thesis about um, cyber attacks as means of war. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, so I was just wondering, um, according to the UN Charter, throughout the use of force against other states, political independence is a violation of the Charter. Right. So in relation to these troll factories, um, one might argue that they strengthen beliefs already existing in the public, but on the other hand, uh, should there be or are there any boundaries to this? That's a really, really important question. And one interesting that media studies should be discussing, but we're not. It's kind of discussed in politics, international relations, law, for example. Um, the question even of a cyber attack, you said. Yeah. Well, what's an attack? Because yeah. is, a, is a phishing email an attack? Is a spear phishing email an attack? Is a, an attempt to probe a system an attack? And if it is an attack, how do we respond? Do we respond with a little bit of cyber code back, or do we set off our kind of thermonuclear in, intercontinental ballistic missiles? So we have no concept even of how we work out what an attack is and how that relates to warfare. Because the problem is that warfare itself doesn't fit into the contemporary technological models. Um, in terms then of kind of like from a traditional perspective, you could say that if it was an attack, then it's a violation of sovereignty. At which point then, kind of, actually we'd have to be at war with everybody all the time because there's actually kind of tens of thousands of probes and these so-called attacks and emails and everything ranging from kind of just simple kind of like, you know, kind of uh, simple forms of espionage all the way to planting of malware going on in every country all the time, including by people who are allies. So you suddenly find out that America is doing this to Germany, Britain's doing it to Holland. It was just going on everywhere all the time. Um, so that's part of the problem, which is that if we theorise these as attacks and go through a kind of traditional model of kind of international sovereignty, the situation becomes absolutely impossible to deal with. The second problem is that if we also theorise them as attacks, it kind of gets it wrong. Because like you say, if you were posting something that was provocative within another nation, then actually your simple post adds up to nothing whatsoever. It's simply, here's my little comment, here's my page I've set up. It requires everyone else in that nation to take it up and spread it. 
and make it viral. So in a sense, what Russia is doing is crowdsourcing, basically, information war to the host nation. So the host nation is actually kind of, vi not, we talk about virality, going viral, but literally virally infected in such a way that actually you're being attacked by your own system. Essentially, that's what a kind of war... So how does that relate to sovereignty? Because we think of sovereignty as a kind of clash or war as a clash between sovereign states, and actually what we have is a form of warfare where we're doing it to ourselves. Our own system is consuming and destroying ourselves. So I think kind of that problem, how we even theorise that, I don't think we've even understood it properly, which is why people talked about information war, disinformation war... I found it more useful to think literally in terms of trolling, not in terms of the public discourse of trolling, but what trolling actually as a kind of like set of tactics and strategies and kind of a philosophy is. And then you can actually understand what's going on in a kind of closer way. Um, but it kind of does cause a problem within the country of, well, how, how do you respond to it when it's your own citizens? Now, the only way I can think of, of trying to respond to this is some kind of form of exposure. You expose the fact that people be are behind it, but I don't care. So, so, for example, if it's kind of a, some, some kind of political issue I feel strongly about, if I'm kind of very anti-Europe and I'm a Brexiter, which I'm not, then I don't care if what I've just shared has come from Russia, because it's still me, and it's my expression, it's my belief. So actually, the problem we have still comes back to, even with foreign intervention, still comes back to us and the states themselves. And how you deal with that, I think, is a kind of significant problem, because all I can see is that you fight it on the level not of truth, where you expose everyone's errors, because nobody, nobody's ever kind of basically uh, overcome by their own errors. They basically go away and kind of try and retrench. But you kind of, we're left with a kind of basically a form of kind of, almost kind of Gramscian, hegemonic struggling, which every single like and comment is another bullet added to a war. It's a kind of Hobbesian virtuality, in which it's simply a war of everyone against everyone. That may not be a nice place, but I think it's a fairly accurate summary of where we are. Okay, uh, I'll pose a question, and while I do that, please, if anybody else wants to say something, uh, raise your hand, and then we, after that we will finish. We've already been 50 minutes over normal time, so... Uh, Sorry about that. No, 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 that's, we, we, it says 10 in that paper, I see now, but usually it's supposed to be 9.30. We have one here. Maybe you go first, and then I'll... Or I'll ask the question. <laughs> um, throughout the world, we are a uh, few people trying to have universities get off the criminal platforms of Google and uh, Facebook and so on. Do you th I mean, these are criminal organizations, and even the University of Bergen, which is a public state-funded university, uses these uh, mm. tools, which we shouldn't. Do you think that's the way to go? Do you, is there any hope of getting out of these things, or do we have to, as you indicate, transform them into some kind of public institutions from internal, from the internal processes? What do you think? Is, are we off track when we try to awaken what's left of the public space to get out of these criminal organizations? I think, I hadn't even thought about that. This is a kind of vague point. The issue of universities comes down very much to what kind of university you're in. And I, I realized talking to somebody last night that actually I want to work in Norway. Because I think your, your universities, you, you think of yourselves as public servants, you think of yourself as part of the kind of the state, and you like and trust the state in a way that I don't think that we do in Europe and America anymore. Um, and I think part of this is kind of the rampant neoliberalism that has kind of enveloped it. So that the, the, the universities I work in, 
is effectively, although still part state-funded, it's kind of sees itself as a private institution. And our students are obviously customers because they pay money. And they come to us, <clears throat> and a kind of good example of this is feedback, where they come to us for sessions for feedback and they show their essay, and you're supposed to kind of help them and rise them and kind of teach them where they went wrong. But what they really mean is kind of, can you justify that grade because I wanted a first? And if you can't justify it, I'm going to complain because you didn't give me what I wanted. In the same way, if I went into a shop and the coffee was bad, I'd, I'd send it back. So in that sense, kind of within the kind of, you know, we don't trust our universities, I think, as much either. And our universities are going through a whole process of restructuring. And restructuring is always about cutting academic staff. They massively expand PR, advertising, the administration, anything to bring in money and students. They build new buildings. We have Potemkin universities where students come to see giant new buildings, but there's no staff to teach them because we're the ones who are being sacked. So I, I, I see a very different world, I think, from many people in terms of I'm suspicious of governments and I'm suspicious of kind of institutions even like universities. And what I see also is universities increasingly trying to sack staff because of what they do online. They simultaneously tell you to kind of, you know, be online and be on Twitter and everything, but at the same time you're individually responsible. And I myself have kind of survived a disciplinary attempt because of some kind of comment I made on Facebook. And I, I should know this stuff because I teach this stuff. And I also teach law, so I even knew what was legal and what wasn't. But actually it doesn't matter even whether it's legal because employers can sack you simply because their reputation has been harmed. The list of social media guidelines at Swansea University includes saying things like, you should avoid anything to do with politics. And it's a bit difficult, for example, if you're a politics lecturer or you've just written about digital war, but technically I'm in breach of their social media guidelines. You should avoid anything that kind of involves any expression of your sexuality. And you kind of think, well, why? What right does the university have to do that? So I think, actually, I mean, my ideal kind of is, kind of, it comes back to the fact that we need to build a different type of internet. And we need to encode within it much more individual control over what we do. But I also think we need to actually fight any form of institution or any law or regulation which isn't serving us. Because I think we're moving towards a type of internet, maybe not as much in Norway, but if not, then it's coming, in which anything that is kind of basically, this is why I, I believe we should save trolls rather than prosecute them, because we need to save every singularity, every expression of individuality, every right to say, to provoke, to say things that other people don't like, because that's the basis of freedom of speech whilst defending everyone else's ability to say the same. So in terms of kind of answering your question, I kind of don't know. I think that, you know, ideally, you know, even to say that universities should build their own platforms away from Facebook and Twitter, I think that requires you to have a faith in your university. And if you do, I'm really pleased for you, and I wish we could do the same. But it's, I'm as frightened of my university, who are more worried about their reputation than they are about kind of, you know, academic freedom of speech, for example. Um, so, uh, so I, that doesn't really answer your question, but yeah, I think we, we, we desperately need actually kind of a technological solution in this, in terms of the ability of individuals to control what their data is, where it goes, and we need to defend the kind of, we need to defend a non-ideal public sphere, one in which it's not simply about the ideal of communicative rationality and agreement and shared truth, but actually the right to disagree as well and to be offensive. That leads to the problem, the kind of great popper kind of problem of the problem of tolerance. What do you do in a democracy to tolerate people who don't tolerate other people? Which leads to the problem of, for example, the far right and exterminationist movements. And I haven't got an answer for that. But I'd rather deal with that problem than what I see as the problem that we have currently, which is a move towards a kind of uh, 
a different form of internet in which essentially it's kind of the kind of fatal combination of kind of governmental and employment employer surveillance and our own shared crowdsource surveillance in which we hold each other to account in an outraged society and try to get each other sacked or thrown into prison for things that other people say that we don't like. Um, there's a kind of tendency to outrage over any particular issue. The concept of hate speech in the UK has a legal definition, but actually it's been kind of broadened to simply mean hate speech is any speech we hate, any speech that we think might be hate. And I, I think that's a very dangerous kind of path to go down. But it's a sense, I, what I'm trying to get at is the fact that we're colluding in this. And I, I don't think we have to from that point of view, and particularly as academics. I think we have to accept that there are other opinions and they need even debating, but still we won't necessarily reach agreement. Thank you. Thanks for a really interesting talk. Uh, my name is Los Gustav and I work in Nordic literature. Right. Um, so, unfortunately, I haven't read uh, what you've written about sort of the history of trolling yet. Yeah. But I definitely will. Yeah, yeah. It seems very interesting. So, so I don't know exactly what your yeah. history of the troll looks like. Mm. But as you mentioned, the Dadaists, now recently, you made me think of uh, Marcus's book, Lipstick Faces. Yes. Right, so where he's kind of sketching this alternative tradition. Yeah kind of going back to the assassins uh, and then medieval heretics, etc. and up, yeah. sorry, the 20th century with the Dadaists, yeah. the letterists, the situationists, and yes. then punk. Right. Uh, and that book has been a great influence for me, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but the thing is that, uh, and I kind of admire those, that, that will to just kind of point your, stick your finger right in the eye of power, just yeah. to be annoying. Right, yeah. uh, and that basically is what the troll is, I guess. Yes. Even though Marcus isn't using that word. Yeah. But I recently read Angela Nagel's book on yeah. sort of the rise of the alt right and yeah. the killer normies, uh, and there she's arguing quite convincingly in her way that sort of the present bearers of that will to negation is the alt right. Yes. Uh, and that made me, I started reconsidering sort of my love of Marcus's book and that tradition. Yeah. So if today that kind of subversive will has been taken over by the right. Mm. If they're sort of the new punk, yeah. where does that leave us? Since you said you were a socialist, yeah. uh, how does that add up to your sort of defense of the choice? You're absolutely right, and it's kind of part of what I'm interested in. Um, my concept of trolling goes back to, I tried to write a history, I can't actually, I haven't got a publisher for this, they don't want it at the moment, um, but I looked at trolling from kind of an entire history of chaos, going back to kind of, basically kind of different mythologies and religions and theories of chaos as preceding order, and chaos always, order always comes from chaos, and chaos has to be destroyed, but chaos isn't negative, it's productive, it's not evil, evil is a different concept, chaos is something separate, chaos always has to be overcome, but equally at some point every nation society begins to grow old and decay, which is why we need the periodic renewal of the festival, which are periods of chaos, periods of license. And you can see a kind of history of how this kind of these, these festivals kind of move from the kind of so-called primitive festivals that kind of Durkheim was describing in Kaiwa through to Roman Saturnalia, through to the Feast of Fools, and the continual attempt throughout history to kind of, in a sense, by authorities to control, so I'm speaking to you over here, sorry, to control and to kind of like, you know, basically kind of, you know, repress that phenomenon as being too dangerous. But I think you can see a history of it all the way through. It kind of manifests at certain times art and the kind of, you know, Dada futurism, through to the happening, through to even the counterculture, punk is a good example, through to certain kind of 
comedians like Andy Kaufman, all the way through to the internet. There's a kind of continued recognition of a spirit of chaos, subversion, satire. What happens, though, is that for a brief period in about 20, 2008 to 2012, it takes on a very left-wing political view with Anonymous. So out of 4chan and Troll Central comes a kind of left-wing libertarian trolling, which is explicitly political. And that's important because trolling is not political. Trolling is chaos. It's against the order. So it's genuinely against every political position you could possibly think about. Instead, what happened was the troll culture and weaponry and tactics were taken up and used or weaponized by a particular group, which was the left wing. Since then, whilst Anonymous has continued on its own path, separate from 4chan, 4chan, 8chan, transmogrified into the alt-right, and a new generation came along who were explicitly, directly racist, exterminationist, misogynist, and they have now used and weaponized troll culture for right-wing purposes. I, was, um, I wrote an article which I couldn't get published, it's the history of my life, it was called How Fascism Became Fun, because this is the kind of way in which they're kind of using irony and the kind of weapons of trolling to promote genuine exterminationist kind of viewpoints. And Andrew Anglin from kind of, um, uh, wrote an article called uh, the, the User's Guide, Normie's Guide to kind of the alt-right, I think it was called. He refers to non-ironic use of um, kind of fascism, for, you know, couched in irony. So actually he was admitting that they're using irony, but they're not really ironic. Because trolling is always about not being serious. It's always about the lulls rather than an explicit kind of position. So part of my hope is the fact that actually we can recover some of these traditions. Because actually, in a sense, you can easily see why the left and right like trolling or the history of it. Because the left has always been attracted to anti-authoritarianism and poking fun at authority. But the right has become... It's very rare for the right to like chaos because the right traditionally have liked order. They've liked authority. They've liked kind of anything that's against the established authorities is bad. But actually what they also dislike is if that order is not what they want, then opposing the order becomes valid. So when the alt-right see the establishment, the swamp, they see a whole world of liberal correct and political correctness, they can suddenly present themselves as anti-order, anti an order that they see as in place and dominating society. In their case, it's very much, I think, a strategy of weakness. But they're also, if order is a kind of out of political, basically out of chaos rises a political order and all of its structures and values, then the right are attracted to the idea that you can oppose values, which is what they do. They, they oppose, you know, kind of like, you know, the LGBT agenda, feminist agenda, Black Lives Matter. So you can see why the left and right have deliberately picked up on troll culture. Um, I still think that actually there's... This isn't something that finishes here, but this is a, a history of chaos, subversion, satire, disruption and motherfuckery that has a history throughout the whole of civilization, and it will not disappear. And I think, if anything, I think that it can be reused back against them. What's the best way to make fun of the alt-right and basically laugh at them and to actually turn the weapons of trolling back on them? and to kind of reduce them to kind of the stupidity which they are. Jordan Peterson, as a kind of public intellectual, he believes in lobsters having some kind of something to say about humanity. Lobsters urinate out their face. I, I do not know how you ever get to a political philosophy built on lobsters, and he should be ridiculed for it, as should anyone online who believes in Jordan Peterson. So I still believe in the value of disruptive, subversive trolling as a kind of political technique. Sorry. Okay, 
this was, I think, the last intervention. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for coming here. Oh, thank you. And uh, thank you very much to uh, Professor Lindeberg for bringing you here. I don't know if you want to say anything at the end about now, but uh, I'm, def I'm sure this is not the last time we have this hugely important discussion. And maybe we'll see you again in this forum. We don't know. Thank you very much all for coming. And please um, take some food if you want to bring to your office or wherever you go. And remember the 14th of May we have a meeting with SDG Bergen, URB Global and this forum on uh, the use of paragraph 112 in the, our constitution uh, as a uh, active way of making governments responsible for the way they are ruining this world. So it's a question of how legal actions or the professional law can take social responsibility as we now understand the, the journalist profession does not do. So please uh, come back on the 14th of May. Thank you. Du har nå lyttet til et foredrag i serien Forum for vitenskap og demokrati. Ansvarlig for foredraget var førsteamenuensis Tor Halvorsen ved Institutt for administrasjon og organisasjonsvitenskap. Foredraget er arrangert i samarbeid med Bergen Global og SDG Bergen. Opptak er gjort av Tord Røe, rådgiver ved Medisinsk fakultet og Bergen Global. Ansvarlig for podcasten og redigering er Ingel Pilskog, førsteamenuensis i naturfag ved Høgskolen på Vestlandet, tilknyttet Bjerknesenteret for klimaforskning.